Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you can subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. Thank you, Ari Abacasas, for the introduction to our guest today, Eric Doty, founder of Loop. Loop is a free app built for the modern sports card collector. We talk about box breaks, how he thinks about sports card collecting market, solving the classic chicken or the egg, supply demand trap early on, and his approach to leadership. Without further ado, here's Eric. Eric, thanks so much for coming on the show. How are you? Awesome. Thank you for having me on. Oh, it's simply terrific. Simply terrific. I really appreciate you taking the time. Talk to me about the very beginning. What was your attraction to entrepreneurship and collecting cards? Well, from entrepreneurship, I had the luxury of being able to work with GM and VP level executives at Microsoft. So early on in my career, I was able to see what someone actually did to operate a large, you know, billion dollar company with thousands of employees in their organization. And also, you know, I was in startups for a few years. I think when you work and consult in the tech world, sooner or later, you start to notice trends. And a lot of the times, <laughs> I mean, this is going to sound bad, but I've run into some entrepreneurs who really, it just seemed like ego. And it's like, you're only doing this because you're just like, hey, I deserve this. And I'm like, if that's all it takes, I can do that. <laughs> Um, you know, you don't necessarily like you just need the willpower and some money. You don't necessarily need the skills. And I'm like, all right, well, I'm not that brash that I'm, you know, I'm I'm gonna start a thing that I firmly believe in, that I feel that I have a skill set and I have a network of people around me that can help me build this thing. But I think with a lot of things in life, sometimes it's just a little bit of spite. <laughs> You're like, well, if they can do it, I can do it. And as far as loop and sports cards. I was a huge collector when I was a kid. Uh, I grew up in the middle of nowhere in New York on a farm, and that was my real connection to professional sport. And over the last couple of years, I've been getting back into sports cards and just realizing like how big this market is getting again. Um, and that was that for me was a you know the light bulb moment of there's this huge market that's getting a resurgence. Um, there's not a lot of modern technology. Um, there's a lot of people who are coming from modern collectibles, shoes who are getting back in the sports cards. And there's almost this expectation of, you know, the types of tools and website design and apps you would have. And a lot of that didn't exist. So um, I really just took it upon myself to say, what does sports card collecting look like in the year 2020 and beyond? We're started with Loop and we're only about four months in, but we have a huge future ahead of us. No, that's awesome. And yeah, the future is very, very bright for you all. And I'm really excited about your journey. I love this idea of when you're thinking about entrepreneurship, if they can do it, I can do it, mm -hmm. thinking that that I deserve this, right? One of the things that I found on the show when interviewing entrepreneurs is that quite a few have told me that if they knew and understood how truly hard it was, they would never have done it in the <laughs> first place. It's almost having being like blind to what it actually takes to be a successful entrepreneur. I know you're you know, from launch, you're, you're four months into this journey, but I would just love to hear your kind of thoughts on that notion. There's kind of two paths. One is you have to be so confident that the idea of failure never even crosses your mind. You just keep pursuing and the idea of failure isn't even a possibility. 
And that, that for a lot of people is a huge driver and I envy them. For me, it's knowing what failure is and going, okay, whether it's, you know, my own experiences or seeing others who have, have failed along the way on their endeavors and going, okay, I really know that this is a possibility and I'm going to do everything in my power to never get there. And I think it makes you scrappy. It's similar to, you know, I, I grew up fairly poor and I think there's, there's a difference of there's people that know what a life with money is and they don't know what anything else is. And then there's people who are, and you know, they can go on and be very successful. And then there's people who have been poor and they fight like hell to never be poor again. And you can be successful with both of those mindsets, but I feel like the mindset and the things you do to get to your success are very different. I completely agree with you. It reminds me a little bit of a conversation I had with Mercedes Bent, who's actually an investor at Lightspeed, in which she was saying how she's obsessively like paranoid in the moment in terms of wanting to do, uh, wanting to make sure she does everything right. But the long, but long term, she's incredibly optimistic. And almost to your point, you know, you don't even think about what failure looks like, right? Failure doesn't even cross your mind optimistic because you're maybe so incredibly paranoid <laughs> about the present and making sure that will never happen. Is that kind of unfair to say? Yeah, yeah. It, it depends on the day, depends on what you're working on. Um, <laughs> definitely depends on the day. But yeah, no, I think that's that's a totally fair assessment. And at the end of the day, it's just perseverance and what personally drives your individual perseverance to get you through the day, through the week, through the month to hit those goals that you're aspiring to. Yeah, no, absolutely. Back to Loop. I appreciate you telling us how, you know, you grew up in a rural area and sports cards were your connection to sports Mm -hmm. in some ways. Since I'd imagine growing up in a rural area, it's tough to go and actually see games, right? It's a long drive. It's tough to get there. And so to actually having this trading card, what got you back into collecting cards? Yeah. So getting back in the cards, I think it was a, it was just a combination of following a bunch of sports accounts on Instagram. And occasionally they would talk about sports cards or you'd get a suggestion of another sports account and you'd follow it and find out that it's actually more card oriented and I had friends who were into streetwear and, you know, buy and then flip it for a profit. And even they were kind of starting to talk about sports cards. That just drove me to follow more accounts, mostly on Instagram, doing some research. And then obviously Gary V has been, you know, <laughs> talking about sports cards for probably longer than most people who are currently into it. And that, you know, I think it was the combination of all of those that just slowly built like, okay, I'm hearing about sports cards more and more, and then forcing me to do my own research on it. And then realizing that it's like, wow, this is, this is still kind of an underground market, even as big as it's growing, it's still underground. And only just till now does it feel like everyone's really grasped just how big it is. Like even the, the larger news organizations have been talking about sports cards recently. Totally. So what was what was missing in the market, in the sports collecting cards market that you then saw and maybe the, the aha moment per se that led you to found Loop? The One of the big aha moments was after I followed all those Instagram accounts, I noticed that a lot of them were streaming. You get the little in-app notification, so-and-so has gone live. I'm like, what, what are they talking? Are they doing like a podcast? And I'd tap in and they were actually selling cards live. 
oftentimes still sealed in the box. So you would buy a box from them and then they would they would open the box live on stream and then they would ship them to you. You know, immediately I was like, hey, this is a really social experience. This is cool. But to buy in, you had to go, you had to leave the stream and go to PayPal. You had to send them money or email them your address if it wasn't with a PayPal message. And then you'd have to go back to the stream, let them know that you paid and match up your you know, my username and Instagram is this, but my real name that I paid is this, you know, just making sure that they understand that you did pay and it landed in their account. And I come from the mobile app video game background. And immediately I just said, wow, there's, this is such a cool idea. And there aren't many markets that are trying to sell through live streaming right now, but there's all this friction. How can I remove this just for myself and make it more fun to buy and eventually sell? And that was the biggest driver of what Loop is today. There's so many pain points, though, through the whole market, though, that we have from education and anticipation of product. We can do a lot of work there to how to buy the product, whether it's through a live stream or through a very card-centric marketplace to what do you do with your collection and how do you understand what your collection is? What do you do with it? How do you resell it over time and understand the value of it? So really starting in live streaming, but we we look at this, the whole marketplace and go, how can we be on the phone of every single card collector? And I think I'm not going to give away all our, our secrets right now, but we have a roadmap that I feel is very, very ambitious and probably three or four features that when people see them, they're going to like, oh, wow, I can't believe no one's ever thought of this before. And I, I look forward to that. Surprise and delight is uh, something I really like doing and everything I build for consumers. That, that's really helpful. Would you mind breaking down, uh, just for those listeners that that aren't as familiar with card collecting, if you can break down the actual box breaking and the actual how the transactions actually work um, when you're actually buying into a pack, um, if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. So again, we've only been out for like three or four months, so it's very early. Um, but you you download the app, you register, and then we send a push notification usually around lunch or every night. Somebody's selling, and we send a push notification. You. You go into the app and there's you know maybe a few live streams going on. You tap in and then they greet you. And another thing I, I don't talk about enough is our low latency. So right now we're about 1 20th of a second. So the moment you join, the host is going, hey, Eric, <laughs> nice to see you join the stream. I mean, it's so conversational, um, which you almost hardly never see between text and live video and audio. There's almost always, you know, five to up to 30 seconds of latency. So it, it doesn't feel like a conversation. It's almost like posting to a board and eventually they'll get to it. But with us, it's very natural conversation. And we have a menu where it shows everything they have for sale. Maybe you're buying a pack of cards for $30. You hit the button. It's two taps. It takes about four seconds. It's done because we have all of your payment and shipping info already baked in, ready to go. And... They'll go, hey, awesome. Thank you for buying that. Pick your pack. Maybe there's 12 packs. You give them seven and they pull pack seven for you and they open it on stream. And while they're opening it, everyone else in stream is watching this along with you. They're asking questions and they're going, hey, the, oh my God, you got this amazing card. Um, you should be really happy with that. And it's this very social shopping experience through live video. And it really incentivizes you just from the socialness of it to want to do it again or to stick around and watch others buy in because you're like, what are they going to get? And we also, we have people that sell single cards as well. So we have people that sell 
these cards that are already graded. Um, so, you know, a perfect card gets a 10. Uh, PSA is, is one of the grading, uh, grading services. So they'll have this card that's in a plastic slab with the grade and they're like, hey, here's a Kobe Bryant second year card, perfect condition. Does anybody want to buy it for $600? And somebody can go, yeah, I'll, totally, I'll buy that. And they hit the button and it's sold and then that's shipped out to them. And it's not all what we call the box breaks, which is the sealed product. Like it's, it's everything around sports cards, sports memorabilia. We have Pokemon as well. And it's, it's a little bit of blind box experience, but mostly I think it's just the, it's just the social aspect of it that really drives people into the rooms and then to stick around. And the average time that they're spending in stream is like well over 20 minutes, sometimes well over 30 minutes on average every day. And my, I will say from my experience on mobile, unless you're a like TikTok, it's very hard to get people to stay in your app more than a couple minutes. So I think we've really, our focus on the social and the community aspect has been like unbelievably helpful in just building these audiences that people want to come in and every day, some people say it's like cheers. So every day you're kind of like seeing the same people (laughs) and it's like everybody knows everybody else. And then you know, the stream, like a new user will come in and everyone's like, hey, welcome so-and-so. And they like, it's interesting because normally you have to build like an onboarding experience. And we actually don't have to focus on that too much because every time a new user comes in and they say that they're new or they're like, hey, I don't know how this works. There's at least someone else in that stream who's like more than happy to walk them through it. It's so funny. I've run into very few products where they've had the luxury of having a community that wants to basically wants to onboard everyone else for you. It's been great. <laughs> no, that's awesome. And I love that. I love, it seems like how kind people are um, using Loop, uh, maybe overall in terms of introducing people to, to other folks or trying to get other folks involved in these live sessions. And I know that you're only four months in, but you've done so much. How did you think about very early growth and maybe attracting some of I imagine the hosts that actually break the packs, break the boxes. Mm-hmm. What was this idea? Since you are a marketplace, you're connecting folks. What was that process of of attracting folks to Loop? The first wave of sellers was difficult because everyone, no matter how complicated it is, no matter how many different tools and payment systems they're using, at the end of the day, they have it going. Like they already have a business going. They have a system. Yeah. And they just don't think of it any other way. Like, Hey, this works for me. I'm making money. Why would I change? Or why would I want to share my business with another company when I'm good? I will personally buy up to a certain amount of product from you um, just to show you how it works and just, just consider it compensation for your time to test this. And the first stream is like light bulb moment for them. They're like, Oh, now... (laughs) You've explained it to me and I was skeptical, but now I understand it. Once you get a couple of those on board, like your early early users who then become like your, your evangelist out there, um, then we started to get some more coming in and they're like, hey, I heard about this. How do I check it out? We were still in closed beta. So I, you know, it was this really manual process of, well, do you have an iPhone? Okay, get on test flight, all that process. And you know, it was worth it for us because that's all early feedback. And we we made sure that they they had a good time. And then once we launched, I think that was, it was our second or third week. That was kind of the pivotal moment where we had some people who were finding early success. We were growing faster than expected. There was word of mouth. 
And then there were people who were coming in to buy or buy out of curiosity who run their own shops. And then they would like, oh, I thought this was a a buying and selling app. I didn't really understood what this was, but it's actually like, it's much more than that. It's like an entertainment, social purchasing experience. Once they realized that, then we were just getting like hundreds of applications of like (laughs) thousands of dollars of inventory that I need to get rid of. I'd love to sell it through Loop instead of it this other way that I've been doing it. And that was hugely validating and also scary because we're like, okay, we can't onboard all these people at once. We need to make sure that we vet them and make sure they're legit businesses and that they you know, they can handle the scale of customers that we're going to bring to them. Even we weren't expecting to blow up as big as we did. And our, luckily, all of our early sellers were up to the task to keep up with it because... You know, some of these guys, they did a few sales a night. They're just very good at what they do. But again, they're in the this broader Instagram ecosystem. How do you build an audience there and then sell? And all of a sudden we went, hey, a bunch of people just downloaded a loop and we're pointing them all at your video. So get ready. <laughs> get ready for a bunch of sales. And yeah, they they handled it great. That's awesome. And it seems like this is maybe one example of a uh, vertical community around, in your case, collecting cards. Are you also thinking that that this is going to start to appear in other kind of communities or other social experiences? Yeah, I think I think audio rooms, things like Clubhouse. There's a few products in the Clubhouse like space now, and then also just kind of live streaming as a social. Like there are communities of anime fans who one will stream out to 10 other people. And while they're watching, everyone is typing in chat. I just think shared experiences, whether it's transactional like Loop or it's just consuming content like Netflix or Disney Plus, I think those shared experiences are only going to get bigger and better um, moving forward. I think the pandemic, unfortunately, I, I wish those things had caught on earlier because I think we all could have used that more during the pandemic when you were locked inside. But if anything, the pandemic just proved how frictionless a lot of that can be. And uh, I think you'll just see it more and more through 2021. That's helpful. And I love, yeah, thanks for sharing how you think about that. How do you approach trust and accountability when it comes to um, in loop in terms of who's allowed to actually host live streams, making sure that the cards are all legitimate? So that's part of the vetting process is we make sure that they, they have sealed product that they have an existing business, you know, they have to register everything for taxes. Like it's all above board. The thing we really look for is I assume that every person that's currently streaming on the service is going to be the first experience with Loop for some user. So if if I sign you today to sell on the app and you stream tomorrow, there's going to be a new user who just downloaded the app and their first experience with Loop is going to be your stream. And we look for positivity knowledge of the product that you're selling that you're not you're just not buying a ton of product and flipping it with no knowledge of what you're trying to make money on again the positivity the fact that you're like your stream looks good that you handle shipping very well that you ship out within a certain number of days and provide tracking info and again that's a nice thing that we offer above a lot of other platforms is if you're a buyer who's causing issues or you're a seller who's not up to our bar of quality, like we can just remove you from the platform. Like, <laughs> like it is a closed ecosystem. Everything is basically like account managed. And basically, if you're interrupting the 
collecting experience for anybody else or making it a bad experience, you don't need to be on loop. We do look for that. That's so important to us because you know I've sold on eBay and totally had buyers who on day 30 tried to get a refund for their product or they're trying to get a refund. And I'm fairly certain that they replaced the product. I shipped them with one in worse condition, things like that. And you know that's always going to be an issue across every platform. You need to have a system in place that you can monitor for that and know that when there's a bad actor, when to get them out of the out of the ecosystem as fast as possible. It's easy for me to say that because we're transactional. If you're preventing somebody else from making money or spending their money, it's very easy for me to justify saying, get off the platform. It's tough if you're a free social platform, obviously like Twitter, Facebook, where your your product is basically the users and their engagements. It's very difficult to do that because like your bad actors actually create a ton of engagement and the engagement looks amazing on paper. But I feel like a lot of social platforms didn't take that into account early on. And now they're obviously dealing with a lot of repercussions and, and consequences of that. So if I've, if I've learned anything looking at that is like the moment I see somebody is legitimately a bad actor and I don't think there's any reforming there, they just need to be off the platform as soon as possible. I really like that in terms of how you think about monetization and how do you think about your model when if someone's trying to break that model and disrupt that experience when that when it comes to transaction, since you are transaction based, then it's almost easier to kick that person off, right? From my experience is that the bad actors are not there to spend money. They're there to be entertained and potentially cause chaos, <laughs> much like any other social platform. So I, I don't feel too bad about it. And it's, it's unfortunate because like, I think everybody brings like a unique perspective to a community. But at the end of the day, you need to protect those that are most engaged in spending in your platform. Totally agree. I'd love to hear as well a bit about what was your approach to fundraising and maybe what were some of the, the biggest hurdles or question marks that investors had about Loop? I, I should be clear up front that this is my first time as a founder. I've run teams and companies before, but obviously under CEOs or, or parent companies. So I was coming into it with a very limited visibility of what raising money looked like and and pitching to you know, actually get a check. So I did a lot of research. My first deck, it's somewhere. I have it saved somewhere. It was horrible. It had no guidance of like why this is cool to somebody that doesn't know. It wasn't clear on the potential growth or the address on market or how much money we could make. It was more of like, hey, I'm a product guy and my deck is talking about all the cool product I want to build. When you're talking to investors is not ideal. So I definitely struggled for the first few months as we were building, I was just kind of casually going out and getting feedback and rebuilding the deck. And then it kind of clicked when we really got into the live e-commerce direction. Like this is V1 of what we're going to launch with later this year. I started to look around for investors who were really big in the sports cards or they were talking about sports. Like they were starting to grasp that this was a market. Because again, if you're talking about sports cards as somebody who's never even thought about the space, they're like, there's no way this is big enough. And it is, but you have to look in the right places. So, you know, people like Darren Herman, who does a he streams, he does podcasts. He's a huge collector himself. He talks about sports cards all the time. He's an investor. I, just on Twitter one day, I just saw this amazing blog post roll through the, the sports card topic. And he's just talking about like how big he thinks the market is and where it's going and, and what's important today and what's going to be important tomorrow. And everything we were building and how we were thinking about Loop in general aligned like with every single bullet point. 
And I was like, I have to talk to this guy. <laughs> and ultimately, like he's been a really great investor from early on. There's a, a guy that works at Epic Games. Obviously, everyone knows what Fortnite is, who's a card collector himself. And like that was, you know, I just knew him through the game industry from working in it for a decade. And then there was a uh, Nat Turner, who's a huge collector, like probably the largest collector I personally know. And now just recently bought Collector's Universe, who owns like the largest sports card grading company in the US. So he ended up investing and just getting our initial set of investors as like diehard sports card collectors and then using their clout <laughs> as traditional investors. <laughs> I mean, ultimately, that's, that's like, how do I get the people that really understand this space? Cool. Okay. Beyond that, you have clout as an institutional investor and you have a network. Cool. How do we get more people on board? So we raised a small angel round. We launched and then we had another wave that came a lot faster. <laughs> Once we launched it, you know, again, it just clicked like, oh, that's what they're doing. That's the potential. And then from that, you know, I was just like, okay, well, we're going to, we're going to raid this pre seed round. We're going to cut it off and we'll be done. Like we won't need money again for a while. And the momentum just started building, like the success, the number of partners, the revenue, everything was just growing faster than we even anticipated. And, you know, the cost of running the business. And now suddenly like, oh man, we're growing so fast. There's expectation to build product faster. I have to build a team faster. So luckily we were able to work with Upfront, Upfront Ventures in Santa Monica. They came in and led the, the seed round we brought some people in from earlier, um, as well as some of Upfront's network, and we we closed the seed round. And let me tell you, as a first-time founder, every single step of the way of that was intimidating as hell. And everything that I think will take a week takes four weeks. That's what I've learned. Because <laughs> you have, I mean, uh, there's people you have to work with, there's validating data, there's working with attorneys, there's paperwork, there's paperwork for each individual person. And, you know, everyone who's an established entrepreneur or VC is probably laughing at me right now. But as a first time founder, that whole thing was just so intimidating. But I'm out the other side now. It's been great. It's been a huge learning experience. And luckily, I'm just, I'm a very data oriented product person. So I will say the one thing the one advantage I had, very data-oriented. So day one, I knew exactly what we should have around tracking users, tracking behavior, tracking you know retention, all, all of those things. Like We have dozens of data points that we've basically been tracking since day one. So if anybody ever comes in and goes, hey, I'm interested in investing in you, but it'd be really good to see X data point. I'm like, cool, we have that export. Here you go. There wasn't like scrambling or making any data up. It was all like, it was just all there in a dashboard already. So that if I'm going to say my strength, it's just loving data to the point that I'm probably ready for most questions. I love that. I love that. I really love you sharing that, that journey. And what's great about being in the social space is since you were teaming up with and having investors um, already that were uh, pretty uh, well-known to having uh, card collections and have influence in your space, to be quite honest with you, right? That I'd imagine in terms of when it comes to customer acquisition or just getting people on the platform, then it was also easier, right? Since you already had investors that were part of Loot. Yeah, I mean, you have investors who are already spending money on the platform. They're bringing their friends in. I won't 
say who in case there's a significant other listening that wants <laughs> won't be happy about this. But I know there's a few, some who are investing in us, some who are um, who are friends of them, and uh, they've spent tens of thousands of dollars on the platform in the last like <laughs> sixty to ninety days, and they're just like hooked. And you know that's having them watch streams every single night on their own. Like they're not doing this for the benefit of me or the company. Like they want to do this. And then they go and talk to their friends and they're like, Hey, what did you do this weekend? Oh, I watched streams on loop and bought a thousand dollars in cards. Or I got a Michael Jordan rookie card. And suddenly their friends are going, well, I don't have any plans tonight. I'm going to download this app and I'm going to check it out. (laughs) So unintentionally, I think we did a little bit, you know, Clubhouse very much did like the VC network invite only exclusivity. And, you know, I think that really built their market early very quickly. For us, it was just get a few investors on to buy cards and then they're slowly going to bring all their friends on. (laughs) And, uh, you know, they see each other like, oh, you're on tonight. All right, well, I'm going to go in a different room because I don't want to compete. I don't want to compete in buying cards with you. (laughs) It's been interesting to say the least. Yeah, that's pretty wild how some of your biggest investors are as well. Some of also your biggest customers too. I'm curious, I hear, um, I listen to other podcasts and, and think about and of other founders that build social platforms. And there's usually always one metric or two metric that leads to um, maybe further engagement or stay on the platform longer. I'm curious because you're such a data-oriented person as you described. Is there one metric that you might optimize more for on looped that really leads to maybe longer retention, maybe more daily active users or engagement, or even since you're transactional, um, an increase in in terms of how much people spend? I think the, the easy answer is transactions. Yeah. How many what percentage of users are making purchases and then how many are going on to make another purchase? Average purchases per week, amount per transaction. Those are, I think those are all the really easy ones. But when I think about top of funnel, it's how many of your registered users are watching a stream? And like, you can't do anything else until you watch a stream. So top of funnel, like, how do I get you into a live stream? Like Mm -hmm. near 100% of my users should have watched at least one stream. Like if we can't do that, then we failed. We're pushing near 100%. And I think we've done a good job with that. Um, but as we build out a more robust platform, I think that's, you know, things become distractions and you need to be very careful that you still maintain, like, what is that first thing I need you to do after you register? After that is once you're in a stream, again, you can transact, but how do we get you to want to talk to other people? I think there's two paths. One is you can have emotional connection to everybody else in the room and you want to stay there and you want to come back. And most of that is chatting. So you're chatting with the broadcaster, you're chatting with other people that are watching with you. And then the other is just the surprise and delight factor of purchasing through Loop. So if you're purchasing something, you should be surprised at how fast it is. Like, wow, I've never used a purchasing platform that's as smooth as this and as frictionless as this to the point of like, what's the thing that you're getting for your money? So not even necessarily like, are you spending $20 and getting a $20 card or something that's like worth $20? It's more of you're getting these cards in an experience where other people get to interact and support you. And the host is also like rooting you on it. And I don't liken any of this to gambling, 
But the social aspect of it reminds me so much of playing craps in Vegas. Like you're rolling the dice and you're interacting with the person running the table on behalf of the casino. But then there's all these other people around the table who are gambling and doing their own thing. But what they're doing also relies heavily on what you're doing on the table. And there's this, everyone's connected to this table. And that's how I like to think about Loop in a lot of ways is everybody, whether it's five or a hundred plus, um, everyone is connected to this stream and connected to this host. And we need to build out ways to make sure that you're all connected, that you're being social and that you're purchasing. It's very much like, how do we just make everything so fluid and conversational that you don't even think about it anymore? Like just being in the stream is like a very organic feeling versus me potentially watching. And again, I, I talk a lot about like craps table and also Twitch, the, the game live streaming service. When I join Twitch, I'm, I'm a passive observer. Like I'm watching somebody else be really good at video games and they're commentating. And if they're really big and there's hundreds of thousands of people in the room, there's no way I'm going to interact with them in any reasonable way. I'm just watching it like I would watch a TV show. And I think that's something I really want to avoid is there needs to be, you need to have a personal connection to everything that you're doing in loop. And I think that's how you build community. I think that's how you build retention. I think that's how you build returning customers. So on that notion with the Twitch example, do you already do like room limits or are you thinking about having like limits in terms of when people are live streaming so that you do have that interaction? It's something we've thought about. We don't enable it right now. I don't think we've run into a situation where that's been an issue because you're naturally going to have people who just don't interact. You know, they just kind of want to sit back and, and watch but I think at some point it will either for this type of content we currently have, I think there will be a limit where you have like diminishing returns where there's so many people that it's actually putting some people off from even purchasing because it's just like too much or they don't want that spotlight or there's too much competition for an item. And at that point, that's when we really need to look at it of like, okay, maybe we need a different type of content in the app or a different way to purchase that facilitates that. We say many to one, many could mean 20, it could mean thousands. But when we think of the many thousands to one, I think we really need to reevaluate as like there needs to be a different type of experience for that. Totally. It's a tough blend, right? Trying to become social and, and interactive as well as making sure that it's also not too large of a room where actually that interaction maybe doesn't happen or people are worried about interaction and you don't have that those quite the same connections. What is one thing you would change when it came to venture capital? I think there were a lot of comments that just felt disingenuous. And I say that because, like I said, I'm not necessarily good at selling myself. I'm good at selling product. And you know, early on, I've heard this over and over now later, is that early investors are really betting on you because you don't have a lot. They're betting on you going like, I believe that you can go do great things with the money that you have. And I could feel that frustration building early on. And I don't deal well with people who can't say no. <laughs> a lot of people in VC, they want to be supportive, but they also want to leave it open. So in the future, if you come back and say we're wildly successful, they have another opportunity to come back and be like, okay, well, I want to give you a check now. Whereas if they came off too harsh and said no early on, you might not even go back to them to have that conversation. So I kind of understand it, but it was trying to wade that world of like, okay, well, 
are you really interested? Are you not interested? Should I come back to you? And then the famous line of, we're rooting for you from the sidelines. Um, I never want to hear that phrase ever again. (laughs) (laughs) I totally get it. Like I understand the sentiment behind it is good. But there's definitely just that like adult talking to the little kids sometimes. And that's my own insecurity probably coming through. But it was so funny. After I heard it like three or four times, I'm like, oh, no, I'm going to be hearing this a lot, aren't I? (laughs) (laughs) I think a lot of VCs say it's a maybe or maybe we're interested because they, of course, want to keep that relationship alive. And as well as, you know, if you go on a race on a round. Um, want to still be in the conversations for, you know, the next round. And so they don't want to completely cut that off in your mind. I could imagine it's tough for an entrepreneur to know what's real and what's not real, right? When you actually talk to VCs that might respond like that. I will say there were two, I won't name them. There were two specifically that I can remember. And I'll probably remember this for the rest of my career is both times uh, calls with these two individuals is it was obvious within the first like, five or 10 minutes that they weren't a good fit. Either they they do like series A or beyond, or they only, their thesis is like not anywhere even remotely close to like what we're working on. Again, this is two out of probably maybe close to 200 at this many <laughs> at this point, but they were just upfront, like, honestly, like this just doesn't fit. We thought this was something else, or we thought you were further along. Um, this just doesn't make sense, you know? We'll give, you know, maybe it was scheduled for 30 minutes or an hour. And they're just like, if you're okay with it, like, it doesn't make a lot of sense for us to talk right now. Like, we can talk later or not at all. And you do not understand how happy I was because I'm like, oh, great. I'm not going to spend 20 minutes continuing to pitch to you when I know for a fact you have no interest. And I, I have so much respect for them that they were just so up. They weren't rude about it. But, you know, they were just up front and I'm like, cool, no, that makes sense. I'd love, you know, that's 20 minutes I can get back in my day to go work. I don't know if everyone is like me and reacts like that, but if you're a VC out there and you have those feelings early on in a call, please don't be afraid to uh, to pull that card and just like, yo, I'm out. Maybe we'll talk again in a few months. <laughs> I completely agree. I think having that respect for you and your time and also having respect for themselves and their time, right? And, and think about the actual efficiency. I don't want to be in a call for 30 to 60 minutes right. and at the end go, yeah, this doesn't make any sense for us. I'm like, why did I do this then? <laughs> right. You're a series B firm. Why does this make any sense? So what's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? There's a memoir. I, oh, I can't remember her name. It's called Educated. It's so good. And it's very personal. It's a personal story about growing up in an area that didn't believe a lot in education and being the first in my family to go to college. And, you know, again, that was, that was the story of this woman that wrote the book just really stood out to me. It was very interesting and kind of gave me a different perspective of how I look at where I grew up and my family and and where I want to go in life. So it's called factfulness, 10 reasons we're wrong about the world and why things are better than you think. Again, I'm a huge data person and this book dives into a lot of the numbers around the things that happen in the world. So you know, it goes as far as like, why is Africa an emergent market for tech and industry? And and how does our own personal bias in the U.S. make us underestimate where Africa is as like all the business that happens there, like which we're so blind to it. And why are we blind to it? And where, you know, when when they continue to keep growing and getting more funds and industry and and startups, like it's going to make everything else 
look tiny and why are we ignoring that? And there was, it was just a lot of really interesting data around it. And it was funny because I'm reading this book about data and, and how to think about business and, and markets and the world. There's this part in the chapter of where it was saying that in parts of the world where children get more sick, um, it was talking about homes that heat with wood furnaces and how there's more lung issues in children, which then proceed to escalate into other paths of, of child mortality and sickness. And it was funny because, again, I, I talk about growing up on a farm as we heated our home with a wood furnace and I was sick all the time. Like I had terrible allergies. I had terrible lung issues. Literally, we would go chop wood and put wood in the furnace and that's how we heated our home. And when I left home to go to college and eventually you know, like moved out to Seattle, lived in, lived in cities. <laughs> I was like, I never want to live in the country again. I'm going to go <laughs> live in cities. And then all these health issues that I had just went away. And I'm like, oh, maybe I grew out of them. And then, so back to this book, I'm reading this book and it like blew my mind. I'm like, oh, I was sick all the time because my parents heated their home with a wood furnace. <laughs> 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 and I, I never told my parents that. I'm like, I don't want them to feel bad about it. But it's like, it was like a stat of like how much higher risk you were if you did that, like heated your home that way. Um, so it was, again, just those two books um, over the last couple of years were like hugely influential and just kind of like opening my mind of, of how to think about myself um, as well as thinking about the world around me. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Both sound really interesting and excited to add them to the book list. No one yet has brought these two books up. So you are very original, Eric. What's the best piece of advice that you've received? I am a very product-driven kind of tunnel vision person. And whether it's it's working with my employees, um, talking to my friends, or working with consultants that help us with the business or investors, I'm very busy. Like my emails become like five words. <laughs> Like if I'm chill and have all the time in the world, I'm I'm very verbose and I can I can write these paragraphs. But when I'm in it and I'm just like stressed, my ability to communicate becomes very truncated. And I have a friend who is he's the opposite of me. He's very super high EQ, um, very caring. Not that I'm caring, but like he's on another <laughs> level. Very Zen human being, and I love him. It's not like one line of advice. It's more of like a series of events and where it's like, okay, I, I realize now his frank feedback that comes from a pace of kindness is that this is how I am. And there are a lot of people in this world that I work with or interact with who are not like that, especially in text. Like when people are used to seeing many sentences and paragraphs from you, and now they're getting a five-word response, they're going to think that you're angry at them or that you're, <laughs> that, you know, th that they did something wrong. And it's not that. It's like, it's all on me. I'm just really busy. And this is what you're getting from me. So what I learned from this very Zen individual, he's a brilliant designer named Chu, Eric Chu. He basically taught me to like recognize one that's happening and to step out of yourself and go like, okay, what is this person I'm interacting with right now actually need from me do they need a five minute or do they need a five word email from me probably not they actually both from a professional and an emotional standpoint they probably need a little bit more from me so that's that was hugely influential advice for me is just like knowing when to recognize when you're in that point of basically like weakness and stepping out of yourself and going okay i'm not serving the people i'm working with in the best way possible i need to 
I need to reevaluate and like calm down and do this the right way so that they can benefit from it. Because it's not always about you. <laughs> um, nine times out of 10, it's about what they need to do to build the business and make it better. And you're just there to facilitate the knowledge or the money or you know the connections, whatever they need to do their job. So yeah, that was... That was a really long-winded answer of basically knowing when to step out of yourself and step back and know like, hey, I need to assess and better understand what I'm doing right now. Yeah, as a CEO and founder, how then just expanding upon this, how do you think about communication upon your team as well as like leadership and steering, you know, loop in the right direction and making sure, you know, everyone's on the same board and everyone's bought into the mission and kind of expressing that mission down to your to your team. It's always tough because, and I found this more in the startup world than the the corporate world, is in the corporate world, there's a lot of just known social expectations of how you communicate. Like everyone uses the same tool to talk, well, instant messages, teams or whatever. They use they know how to function in email because they write professional emails all the time. And they have very strict scheduled meetings of how you check in with your team and one-on-ones and all that. So I come from the corporate world where it's just like all this expectation of, of social standards within that personal organization. Google's different, Amazon's different, et cetera. So I come in the startup world and some have corporate experience. Some have only worked at startups. Some have only worked as a consultant. Some are in their first job out of school. And now you're, you not only have to learn how to communicate with them in the way that they they want you to, to even build like a foundation to, of communication. But then there's a second level of like, okay, well, to be efficient and to build a team, we kind of need everyone to at least have a bare minimum of communicating in the same way. So then it's like understanding people and then building on top of that and going, okay, well, this person really, really likes Slack and they like talking in Slack all the time. That's cool. But some things are better suited for email or for logging or for logging in a tool or a document so we can come back to it later because things just get lost in Slack. And then there's people on the other end who just love email and they don't really like, they see the the ongoing conversation as a distraction. So for me, every time I build a new team, it's like, okay, how do I quickly understand the needs and communication style of each person? And then what's a good compromise that we can raise everybody up to as a bare minimum to say like, okay, if we're going to operate as a team every day, you know, do check-ins, like this is what we need to do to make sure everyone is on the same page. I'll never say it's easy. (laughs) It's never easy. Um, It's just something you have to do as a company um, when you start from zero. Totally. And I appreciate that. I mean, thinking about how, what communication channels you use for specific contexts, right? That makes a lot of sense as you say it. What's your best piece of advice for founders who are currently building? Honestly, understanding what you're building and the weaknesses. Let me pivot away from fail fast. It's understanding your your strengths and weaknesses as fast as possible. I think even broader, it just comes back to self-awareness of both yourself and your team is there were definitely features that we have on the back burner that were prototyped even before we did the live streaming aspect. And I just knew right away, I was like, this is a huge undertaking. It's not a business that we can build any revenue or profitability around immediately. We are just going to sit here and spin our wheels 
And we'll have so much fun building this. I'm not going to say it because we're going to build them later, but we have these prototype features and it's like, this would have been so much fun to build and we would have loved it. But ultimately we wouldn't have built a business around it and we would have struggled for many months. We might've raised money. We would have just burned through that money and then we'd be back to zero. And being able to step out of that and be like, regardless of what's fun, what does the market actually need? Like, okay, do we have the internal organizational strengths to build that in a smart way that actually serves the market? And where are we lacking on the team that we'll need to hire for? And a great example of that is I'm doing sales right now. Like I'm onboarding, I'm pitching and onboarding all of the sellers on the platform as the CEO, which, you know, early on is great. Now, probably not so great. And you know, managing the money and the payments and the account management and building store promotions. And we're at a point where I'm like, that is not my strength. I'm like barely getting along on this and being, you know, again, self, self-awareness of like, I, this is when I need to hire somebody to take this off my plate and I need to trust them and delegate it to them so I can go work on the things that I'm strong at, which is hiring, building a team. I'm good at that. I'm not really good at managing people day to day, um, external partners, you know, that's, there are people that do really well at that. So a top level fail fast by knowing what your strengths and weaknesses are, and then being self-aware enough to like know when to hire and when, when you need to like really amplify your efforts in those spaces. I love that. I love that. I think that's a great piece of advice, knowing what your strengths and weaknesses are, being able to express that and know when to delegate what it comes down to. I think as you described on the marketing side, maybe for you, in terms of when you actually might need someone to delegate that part too, since you're focused very much on product, right? And the product is one of your many strengths. And I found, again, just being in tech for so long, there are definitely managers and CEOs who hate delegating. And you know, if I could pass them specifically, if there's one piece of advice is like, get comfortable with delegation because you are going to be the failure point of your company when you get to a point where you can't do everything because you've never delegated and you overwhelm yourself and then you physically can't do everything, um, that's when you start building weakness in your company and you need to be aware of that. That's a great point. That's a really great point. Well, Eric, this has been terrific. Thanks so much for your time. This has been a lot of fun chatting. Yeah, thank you. You know, again, we're only three or four months in, but if you want to check out Loop, please do. And, you know, I think we have a really big 2021 ahead. So going to be a lot of long nights ahead. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited for you and Loop. It's terrific. That's awesome. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure chatting with Eric. Please follow him on Twitter at DMZilla. That's D-M-Z-I-L-L-A. I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone. <laughs>